So please stand and join me for the reading of God's word. Our scripture focus today is Genesis 16, 1 through 6. Abram's wife, Sarai, had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, Since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarai had said. So Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan 10 years. He slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. When she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. Then Sarai said to Abraham, You are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. Abram replied to Sarai, Here your slave is in your power. Do whatever you want with her. Then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. This is the word of the Lord. My name is Stephen, and I serve here as the church planter in residence. Uh, If you don't know what that means, uh, it means that I, uh, in about 14 months, will be planting, starting uh, a new church in the city. Um, And uh, it's always an honor for me to to be here with you guys, uh, to be able to open the word and and just kind of talk about my favorite subject, which is Jesus Um, A couple weeks ago, I got the opportunity to stand here and speak to you guys about friendship. And uh, it was a really, really cool time for me because I I really love to be a good friend. I really want to be a good friend, and I really want good friends as well. Uh, And the first thing, one of the things that I said, I think it was the first point that I made, uh, was that Friends, uh, friendship requires vulnerability. And so today, getting this chance to speak with you guys, uh, I'm, I'm going to try to model that for you guys. There's going to be a lot of vulnerability uh, in today's message. Um, and, and I want you to know that it's because I feel like you guys, first of my church family, you have uh, supported my wife and I, you have supported us with your prayers and with your support, uh, but because we are brothers and sisters in Christ and bearing each other's burdens is, is part of what that means uh, to be brothers and sisters in Christ. And so uh, we're going to talk about some things today. We're going to talk about this story that uh, Jesse read for us the beginning of, uh, and I'm just super excited about uh, being here with you guys. So uh, March 3rd, in a lot of ways, was the best day of my entire life. It's the day I found out I was a dad. This is going to be rough. You see, my wife had woken up early, and, and sometimes I'm a little bit of a bear, so she didn't wake me up. She waited for me to wake up. Uh, and we walked out uh, to, to the couch where I have my morning coffee and prayer and, and Bible reading time. Um, and she came with her hands behind her back, and she handed me this brown paper bag. And in it contained a couple things that would change my life forever. And I think I have a picture of it here. Uh, it was a, this little onesie and a positive pregnancy test. And we held each other, and we cried. You see, we were shocked And I think that's the proper response for every first-time parent, right? 
whether you were expecting it, whether you've been waiting for it forever, whether you weren't expecting it, whatever, I think the proper response to a positive pregnancy test is a little bit of like, whoo, okay, here we go. And we looked at this and our shock turned quickly to joy. The biggest reason that this turned to joy is because this isn't the first time that we had held each other and cried around this time every month. For almost four years, every month at that time, we held each other and cried because we weren't pregnant. We were battling infertility. We looked around and it felt like everybody was able to have kids. We looked around and we saw a negative pregnancy test as a an unanswered prayer from God. And we felt really alone. See, singleness and infertility are very similar. Some of you don't know the infertility battle, but we've all at some point had the singleness thing. And when you're single and you look around, it's like everybody has somebody, right? Like even the guy when you're rolling down the road that stopped at a stoplight and he's picking his nose and he thinks that nobody can see him, that guy has somebody. So why don't you have somebody? When you're battling infertility, it feels like everybody can have a child except for you. Singleness and infertility feel like, make you feel like someone doesn't see you, like no one hears you, that no one, not even God, knows you. It's a really hard road. And so today, I want to talk about a story about what it looks like to be in the middle what it looks like to battle waiting, that time in between when either God grants our requests or he gives us grace to understand his plan. That's where we find ourselves, here in Genesis 16. Abram and Sarai have been battling infertility. I know what that's like. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open them. We're going to be in Genesis 16. Genesis is the first collection of stories in the Bible. So if you just literally open your front cover and go just a couple pages, you will be right there. If you don't have your Bible, you probably have your phone. Uh, You can look it up there, or these words will be on the screen as well. So we're kind of jumping into the middle of this story, so I want to give you a little bit of background. Abram and Sarai had been God's chosen people. God talked to Abram years ago, and he said, I am going to make of you a great nation, a nation that will be a blessing to all the other nations, and I'm going to make your descendants number more than the stars in the sky. There was only one problem. He didn't have any kids, nothing, and he was old. He was about 90, and his wife, Sarai, was 80. Now, I don't really know how the biology of the ancient Bible works. I do know that 80 and 90-year-olds today ain't having kids. But it seemed like there was still some time left for Abram, but that Sarai's, from what we understand of the context of, of what the author is saying, Sarai was probably well past her childbearing years. So they're waiting. They have no idea how God is going to do this. So let's read... Chapter 16, verse 1. Abram's wife, Sarai, had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. Remember that that term, 
Perhaps through her, I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in Canaan 10 years. He slept with Hagar. She became pregnant. And when she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms. And when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. Abram replied to Sarai, here, your slave is in your power. Do whatever you want with her. Then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away. So let me start by saying this. Abram, who would eventually become a man named Abraham, is in the Faith Hall of Fame. This guy would prove over and over and over again his faithfulness to God and his moral character and his uprightness. In fact, later on, a biblical author would say that righteousness was afforded to him, meaning that God put him in right standing with himself because of Abraham's faithfulness. This ain't one of those stories. See, Abram makes some bad choices here, and it causes a lot of heartache and conflict. But I, I think that should give us a little hope. Because you see, God knew who Abram was and still answered his prayers, still held his promises, and didn't leave Abram to be that guy that we see here in chapter 16. God continued a work through him, a work that we call sanctification, which means being more like Jesus, being more fully human as humans were intended to be in the image of God. So, if a guy like Abram can make some serious missteps and God can still use him, it should give us hope that God can still use us no matter who we are or where we are in our faith journey. So, Sarai, his wife, sees a problem. She knows that Abram needs an heir in order to fulfill God's promise of making of him a great nation. The difference here between what Sarai and Abram did and what my wife Jess and I did is that God had actually promised Abram and Sarai descendants. Jess and I were praying for a promise that we never had. God never guaranteed that we would find or that we would become parents, just like God never guarantees that everyone will find a spouse. But Abram and Sarai should have held on to the promise. God actually told Abram that he would do this for him. Most of us will never experience this promise quite this clear. But we can definitely understand what Sarai does next. She gets impatient. See, she was in the middle. She was in the waiting, and that's a hard place to be. She doesn't trust that God will fulfill his promise, and she doesn't trust in his timeline. Our impatience, much like hers, shows a lack of faith in God's control, and we assume that he needs our help in taking care of things. If you're writing this down, or if you're taking notes, I'd love for you to write this down. Believe God's promises and trust in his timing. See, Sarah was getting old and desperation was setting in. Her impatience convinced her that God's timing must have been off. Ever been there? So she has to step in to correct, to help God. She looks around at what's at her disposal and she determines that she needs to take control of things. And in doing so, she fails to do this simple thing 
to believe God's promises and to trust in his timing. So she owns a slave named Hagar. And she says, you know what? I, I think I have a solution. I'm going to give this slave to my husband. Now, this is very uh, offensive to us in, a, you know, in 2021 Western culture. Uh, but it's actually something that happened all the time uh, in the, the ancient Near East. Now, let me be very clear. The Bible doesn't condone slavery and doesn't condone this action. This is just really a snapshot of what was going on. This is an explanation of events that happened, not condoning the things that happened. In fact, God goes to show the freedom that we have in him. There's all sorts of, of things that we could go into here. But I just want to take a second and, and remind us, God doesn't condone slavery. and God doesn't condone giving slaves for uh, conception purposes. So Sarah gives Hagar to Abram to sleep with in order to conceive. She uses her as a tool. And the hardest part about this is that, for Hagar anyway, is that this child that she is forced to conceive wouldn't be her child. It would be Abram and Sarai's child. So here is a young slave girl without the ability to give consent, given over into a sexual relationship with a man, to be used as a tool to conceive a child. Now, we should pause there and say, maybe this probably wasn't the best choice for Abram. And this is Abram's first step, her first misstep. He literally accepts something that he knows is wrong. But he doesn't trust God's timing. He doesn't trust God's promise. So he comes up with this terrible solution. But God's grace is first seen here in verse 3. Abram could have just taken Hagar as a tool to conceive and cast her aside, but he didn't. He took her as a wife. And through this simple act, God would take care of Hagar for the rest of her life. So God hasn't shown up in the story yet, but we've seen God's grace already taking care of a vulnerable person. See, in, in chapter 15, Abram had a vision. And in this vision, God reaffirmed the promise that God had given to Abram to make his descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky. This was delivered to him personally. So you could maybe argue that Abram thought, man, Sarah had a great idea. This is genius. Why didn't I think of that? This term is often used in my household. Uh, man, my wife is such a genius. Why didn't I think of that? It's always a good idea in my household. In this time, it wasn't quite as good of an idea. And we actually know this because the author does something here. It parallels a story. The author uses language and, and narrative devices to parallel a story that happened earlier in Genesis. A wife taking something she knew was wrong, giving it to her husband. Her husband, knowing it was wrong as well, taking it herself and heartache and conflict coming from it. If you guys are familiar with the story of the Bible, the story that I'm talking about is the story of Adam and Eve and sin entering the world. So the author here is using these devices, these, this mirrored language, to show us that this is a bad choice. This is not what should be happening. But it happens anyway. Now, this view of this story is a bit pessimistic on Abram's part, but I think it really shows us the truth 
of what happens when we get impatient, of what happens when we don't trust God's promises, when we don't trust God's timing, when we take what we think is best and put it onto God. Here's a hint. You don't know better than God. I sure don't. Maybe you do. I don't. And when we misstep, when we aren't patient, when we don't trust in the promises of God, we find ourselves in heartache and conflict. So I think this view of this story is pretty accurate. I think the author of Genesis would tell us that, yeah, this is exactly how I wrote the story. I think God would tell us that this is why I inspired this story to be written this way, so that we see this truth. Then, then Abram has a second choice. Abram could step up and defend his wife, now Hagar, against his other wife, Sarai. He could lead his wife into graciousness and mercy, but he doesn't. He chickens out again. When Hagar, who is again forced to conceive to a child that she's not going to raise, starts to contempt or hate or have enmity toward her master, Sarai, Sarai gets upset with it. Why is she mad at me? And so she gets mad at Abram. Sarai's plan, Abram's fault. She comes to Abram and she says, you know, God judge between you and me. Basically, she's kind of almost cursing him, just staying right close, very angry at Abram. Abram could do the right thing here, but he doesn't. Abram again chickens out, and he just says, hey, she's yours. Do whatever you want with her. Now, we say this as well. The Bible never, never condones polygamy. In fact, this story uh, shows what happens when a man takes more than one wife. It never ends well. It always creates heartache and conflict. Um, again, this is just a snapshot of what happened. It is not a condoning of polygamy. So here we see Sarai continue to take things into her own hands and out of God's. We, like Sarai, often cannot truly believe that God is in control of all things. So we take more and more on ourselves when God is inviting us to do just the opposite. He actually tells us to cast our burdens and cares onto him. So if you're taking notes, I'd love for you to write this down. We should put things in God's hands. See, when we put things in God's hands, or really when we leave them there, because they were there in the first place, we allow God to be God. We trust in his promises and in his timings, but as humans, we aren't great at that. While we're waiting on God to do his part, sometimes we just have to sit and wait and trust. That's what Jess and I did in our infertility journey. It would have been so easy to jump to all of these other solutions. And we, we researched. We did what we could. We looked into uh, IVF, and we looked into surrogacy, and we looked into adoption and fostering and IUI and III, whatever. Uh, there's so many things. I don't know. We looked into all of them, but we didn't feel a peace about any of them. So we had to sit. We had to wait. We had to pray and hope and trust God. What we couldn't be was impatient because impatience always prompts quick and unhelpful solutions. Always. Now, I've spent a lot of time focusing on Abram and Sarai so far, but that's not who this story's about. Chapter 16 hinges on this woman named Hagar. 
the slave girl sold from her home in Egypt, forced to serve a foreign master, given without consent into a sexual relationship, forced to conceive a child she was not intended to call her own, treated so poorly because of what she was forced to do that she runs away back to a home that she has no guarantee will accept her. Pregnant, afraid, and very, very alone. And then God shows up for the first time in the story at just the right time. Verse 7 says this, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come? From where are you going? She replied, I am running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, you have conceived and you will have a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. The God of the universe goes out to find this woman who has been treated as property and without compassion or dignity in order to treat her with compassion and to restore her dignity. This phrase, the angel of the Lord, can mean a lot of things, but what it definitely and always means is a physical manifestation of God's grace on earth. And when the angel of the Lord appears, it almost always brings good news and salvation. Here, the angel brings both. See, even though the child that is in the womb of Hagar would not be the promised child to Abram, God promises to make of this child a great nation. At Hagar's most alone, God seeks her out, and he offers a lasting rescue because rescuing the broken is what God is in the business of doing. In fact, the angel uh, gives this yet-to-be-named uh, this yet-to-be-born child, a name, Ishmael, which literally means God hears. God heard a broken, scared, and alone woman in the middle of the wilderness. He heard her cries, and he answered her. So then Hagar does something that no one in history to this point has done. He gives, she gives God a name. Now, throughout Scripture, we see many names for God. Most of them are given by men or women of great revere, great women of, of faith, men who are leading the Israelites' people. But the first name, the first name that's given to God in Scripture is through a little slave girl who's hurt, who's broken, who's alone. Verse 13 says this. So she named the Lord who spoke to her. You are El Royi. For she said, in this place, have I actually seen the one who sees me? El Royi means the God who sees me. Isn't that incredible? This Egyptian slave has no promise, is not of the chosen people of God. But God saw her. In the middle of her most broken moments, God saw Hagar. 
And friend, I want to tell you that God sees you. Friend who lost someone to the pandemic, God sees you. Mama, begging for God to let you hold a child, God sees you. Dad, laying awake at night, not knowing how to get through the next day, God sees you. Young person, waiting so faithfully for a spouse to appear seemingly out of thin air. God sees you. Students, feeling the weight of the world on your shoulders and thinking that no one, maybe not even God, sees you. God sees you. We serve a God who sees. In our brokenness, in our pain, in our darkest moments, in our waiting and in the middle God sees you, and you are not alone. If March 3rd was the best day of my life, March 16th was the worst. You see, we had just gotten done telling all our family of the amazing miracle that God had created. God had given us a child. And then on a Friday evening, just started to bleed. We couldn't get to see a doctor until the next Monday, March 16th. So we drove to the doctor, not knowing what they would say. But because of restrictions, I had to drop my wife off at the doorstep and watch her walk by herself, broken, alone, and afraid. I had to drive myself, broken, alone, and afraid, to the side of a street. And while there, I cried out to God, save my baby. I looked to the sky, and I said, God, you can't take this away from us. Protect us. Protect her. I cried and I prayed harder than I ever have in my entire life. It felt like every cell of my body was crying out to God. I cried every tear that my body had. And then my phone rang. And I heard the doctor know immediately. There wasn't a baby there anymore. This child we had waited for. This child we had prayed for. This child that we wanted, that we loved more than anything wasn't there. She was gone. Her name was Mercer. The next moments and days, we had to choose. Was God good? Was God ever good? Was his grace enough for us? Was his love true? Was it, was it deep? Was it wide? Was it all the things that he says? Me, sitting alone in my car, alone, broken, and afraid. Jess, sitting on a doctor's exam room table, broken, alone, and afraid. That week was the first week I preached here at the house. We lost our baby on Monday. I informed the staff 
They obviously were incredibly accommodating. They would take care of everything we needed that I didn't need to preach that week. But I had to make a choice. Was God good? Was grace enough? And so I stood right here. And I proclaimed the goodness of God because I promise you, friend, the answer to all of those questions is unequivocally and overwhelmingly yes. Grace is enough. His love is deep and wide. God saw me when I was sitting there alone and broken and afraid in that car. God saw me. When Jess was sitting there alone, broken and afraid on that exam room table, God saw her. And God sees you. In those moments of absolute brokenness, God saw me. In those moments of heartbreak, he was there. In moments where I couldn't stand, he held me. And in a fight that I could not fight myself, he fought for me. And he did it from a place of love and compassion and experience. Because God lost a child too. God went through the heartbreak of watching a child die too. You see, the God who sustains the universe sent his son to die alone on a cross so that we would never have to be alone again. The phrase that we saw earlier, the angel of the Lord, oftentimes it means that Jesus, before he was born in a cave and placed in a manger, came to visit earth. And isn't it amazing that when the angel of the Lord shows up in the Old Testament, he brings good news and salvation. But when the angel of the Lord shows up, when Jesus shows up in the New Testament, he, becomes, he comes to bring salvation. He comes to bring good news. But this good news would last forever. This salvation would not be temporary. It would be forever. I hope this fact comforts you as much as it does me. See, if you have stepped over the line of faith, you have the God of the universe in you and with you and for you. And that's incredible. If you don't know this Jesus that I'm talking about, if you haven't put your faith in a God who loves you, who sees you, who hears you, and who knows you, I would love to introduce him to you. I would love to tell you about this love. I would love to tell you about this salvation. Come talk to me afterwards. Find an elder. Call the, or email the church. We would love to introduce you to this Jesus. Guys, the city of Seattle has been hit very hard by the pandemic. There are hundreds of thousands of people who do not know of a God who sees them, who hears them, and who knows them. We as the church are now called to be the physical manifestation of God's grace here on earth. We get the opportunity to be the extension of God's grace, making people feel seen and heard and known. This mission is not just a good mission. It is critical. It is necessary, and it is essential. 
And honestly, it's a non-negotiable if we put our faith in Jesus. The isolation that the pandemic has brought is real. But the message of the gospel, that there is a God who sees, hears, and knows us, resonates deeply in the hearts of people who have spent a year and a half not being seen, not being heard, and not being known. So what do we do about it? See, this is what we do in the middle. This is what we do when we're waiting for God to answer our prayers. This is what we do in the waiting. This is what we do. We make other people feel seen, heard, and known. So I want to ask you this question. How can you make people feel seen, heard, and known this week? I want you to take this next song, and I want you to think about it. I want you to pray about it. I want you to listen to the heart of God. How can you make others feel seen, heard, and known? In fact, that is the vision of the church that God is calling me to plant. The point will exist to make people feel seen, heard, and known so they can see, hear, and know God. In the city of Seattle, there are 724,305 people, give or take. Every one of them is seen and heard and known by God. It should be our mission to make every one of them feel seen, heard, and known by us, the church, the physical manifestation of God's grace here on earth. Now, I don't stand up here from a place of not waiting, but on April 24th, I found out I was a dad again. I found out that God had done a miracle again. And he had given us a child. But that doesn't tie a bow on things. In fact, I'm still in the middle. I'm still waiting. I'm worried every day that something will go wrong with the pregnancy. I'm worried every day that I'm not taking good enough care of my wife. I'm worried every day that I won't be a good dad. And this is just in the pregnancy. The kid's not here yet. I don't know how I'm going to do all this. I don't know how I'm going to balance being a good dad and being a good husband and, and being a good servant and a faithful servant to the city of Seattle. I have no idea. But even in the middle, God sees me, God hears me, and God knows me. And so because of that, I have made it my life's mission to make others feel seen, heard, and known. Will you guys join me on that mission? Let's pray. Father, you are so great. You are so good to us. Even when we wait, even when it seems like you have answered no over and over again, even when it feels like you have abandoned us, you have not. God, you see us. Just like you saw Hagar in the desert. You come to us. You sent your son to live amongst us, to save us from our sin when we didn't deserve it. God, I thank you for the truth of your gospel, that you see, hear, and know us, that you died in our place, that you have brought us and reconciled us and adopted us into your family. And Lord, I pray that you would send us out on mission. 
that we as the Hallows Church, but we as the, the greater body of Christ, we would have a mission. And that mission would be to make people feel seen, heard, and known. So that they can see, hear, and know you. So that they can know the grace that we know. Lord, we love you. We're so thankful for you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.